Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Ready. This is Stephen Robles and this week we have Dr. Paul Copan joining us on the Free Mind Podcast as we continue our God and Government series. Before we jump into the interview, don't forget to check out impact360.org. They have their online courses about truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. You can get $25 off any of those online courses when you use the promo code FREEMIND at checkout. Also, don't forget to check out their gap year program for rising seniors coming out of high school this year, going into university. They can choose to take a nine-month gap year at the Impact 360 Institute, where they will learn apologetics, how to defend their biblical worldview, and gain a solid foundation for their Christian faith. You can get the application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND at impact360.org. That's impact360.org. And now here's our interview with Paul Copan. Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast, and this is our God and Government series, and today we are so excited to have our dear friend and just giant in the faith. We just so look up to him. His name is Paul Copan, and he will be sharing some great insights about, I mean, lots of things, biblical ethics, I mean, the whole gamut. You do not want to tune out of this episode. We're going to go deep and wide and high and And cover it. Like, you will fully understand Western civilization and Christianity and government. (laughs) No, No, I'm just kidding. But we are going to hit the deep stuff today. And, you know, like Nerva was saying, we, we have known uh, Dr. Paul now for, I don't know, a few years. We brought him into our young adults ministry way back. Um, actually brought him in just for selfish reasons. So we would actually have a connection with him and could become friends after that. <laughs> no, but um, we, oddly enough, we were in uh, the UK a few years ago. And uh, just kind of, I think I saw that the, they were there just by happenstance on Facebook uh, doing the sabbatical at Oxford University. And so we emailed and he was like, oh yeah, we're out here. Come on, let's hang out. And so he gave us a tour. Remember oh, that yeah. tour of the campus? Nervous used to my tours. They're kind of like, you know, I'm sort of like Joe Biden on tour. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, look at that thing. It's from, you know, some time and look at the stuff there. It's really cool, right? Yes. But, uh, <laughs> no, just but, uh, but Dr. Paul, he gave us like a really thorough, oh, gosh. like understanding. We got the understanding of the campus. Then we went to a, uh, I think, I forget the Fine. name of the pub at the end of the night, but it was just an amazing time. Do you remember what the name of it was? I have it on the Yeah, the uh, Turf Tavern. Turf Tavern, that's right. Famous, I guess, I, don't, I can't remember if it's 12th century or 13th yeah, century. Yeah, the, the, the purportedly the oldest in Oxford. And, of course, a lot of celebrities uh, were there, too. So, yeah. The, you yeah. being the, the, the most famous of all, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the, Harry, the Harry Potter crew was there. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> awesome. But, yeah, so the, the, it was just an amazing time, and, and that was about 2016. So now we come mm-hmm. back in, in 2020. I think we were there talking about it was during the – was it during the inauguration? I can't remember. It was 2017, just after the inauguration. Yeah, sorry, 2017, just after the inauguration. And so now here we are going into maybe the most contentious, maybe the most important uh, election, at least of our, you know, lifetimes. And, um, you know, there's so much confusion really in our culture, but in the church, we don't really understand uh, the history of Western civilization. We don't understand the ideology grounding really the American experiment. Um, and, and then we don't really know practically, like, how do we engage as the church now? And we tend to talk at really surfacey level. So I thought it would be helpful just with your, with your background to jump in to helping us kind of dig deep and understand. Now, before, right before we do, I want to tell them what's the best way for people to kind of stay in contact with the material that you're putting out. I know you just started, uh, I think it's Global Worldview Bulletin that we are now, we subscribe to, but can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it's called the Worldview Bulletin, and uh, you, it's, uh, you can just look it up on Facebook. And uh, Chris Reese, uh, I've co-edited a couple of books with him, and Paul Gould, who is now with me, is a philosopher, at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, and he's the director of our, our forthcoming Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion program. Uh, so it's uh, very exciting that we've got something uh, dynamic and uh, growing here on the East Coast in terms of Christian philosophy uh, here in South Florida. So, so y'all come. <laughs> 
program. Uh, so he's another contributor. And then uh, David Baggett, who is at uh, Houston Baptist University, who's done a lot of work on the moral argument, as you know, again, as a vi. Uh, but we're all uh, writing for this, contributing. Uh, just even one, one recent uh, newsletter uh, talked about, you know, well, how do we maintain our, our walk with the Lord, what has been an important uh, way in which we have connected to God. We've talked about prayer and scripture reading and memorization and so forth. So, so again, it's, it, it connect, helps people connect to uh, the scriptures and the Christian faith to what's going on in our culture. How do we engage? How do we, uh, how do we reason with people from a different worldview? Uh, what are some tools that are available, uh, like to, you know, to engage in, in cultural apologetics? And so, and Paul Gould has written a book on cultural apologetics so so that's uh, that's a newsletter that we've uh, that we put out and uh, it's like 250 a month uh, not 250 but two dollars and fifty cents so a bargain uh, for anybody uh, and so that's uh, but if you know so that's something that I'm involved in and if you want to just kind of keep uh, keep tabs on what I'm doing in general uh, I have a website paulcopan.com and also uh, post at Facebook and uh, keep people informed uh, on on developments like even uh, you know, a couple of new translations of my book uh, co-authored book with Matt Flanagan did God really command genocide so one came out in Brazilian Portuguese and another one came out in Spanish uh, in the past uh, week or so so just so I can keep people apprised of what's happening along those lines as well and speaking engagements uh, and so so those are the sorts of things that uh, if you want to tune in you can, you can take a look there. Oh, that's helpful. Thanks, Paul. And I know, you know, probably most people that are coming to this know a lot of your books that you've written over the years have been really helpful. I think you've written on relativism is, you know, is it true for you, but not true for me kind of ideas. But you've also done a lot of work on ethics, um, specifically has got a moral monster. Uh, you've done stuff with, you know, like William Lane Craig on the Kalam cosmological argument, just a wide range. But one that they may not know of is this book on biblical ethics that we're kind of going to, you know, touch on a little bit today. And I would, I would highly recommend this book. I think it's the third edition is your latest edition. Is that right? The third edition. I actually joined, yeah, it's, uh, it's the Introduction to Biblical Ethics, University Press, uh, or IVP Academic. And I co-authored it with Robertson McQuilkin, who had been the president of the university, Columbia International University, that I had attended undergrad. And uh, it was actually a textbook that I used as a senior uh, in a biblical ethics class. Um, but it wasn't even in published form yet. It was like in a, a binder notebook. And, uh, and then it became a first edition, and then second edition, and then... Uh, it needed to be updated, and Robert McQuilkin was asking me about uh, suggestions for a third edition, and so it turned out that I joined him in the third edition, and there are places in this third edition where I don't always agree with him, uh, but uh, so he gives his view, and I give my view, and I think it really adds a kind of a robust dimension to the book that gives differing perspectives uh, on, on a number of different issues in, in this book. So, so yeah, that's, uh, it was a fun project that I was glad to uh, participate in, and some, it had been a book that had influenced me, and so I was glad to be able to uh, contribute some things from my own perspective and also just work together with him to mesh our, uh, our ideas. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we just we have, a lot of, have had a lot in common. Uh, he passed away uh, a couple of years ago, but, um, uh, but uh, again, had a big influence on my life. Yeah, that's really cool. And I found those sections helpful, too. It really shows you, man, how do you disagree on some of these important areas with someone in a way that's civil, which we don't really have many examples of in our current context. Right. Um, but and what, way- and, and I just add this too. What I liked about Robert Smith Wilkin is that, you know, I said, well, you know, there are some points where I uh, would disagree with you. How do we want to navigate that? And he said, well, just write your part and I'll write my part. I think that'll really add, you know, here is in his eighties and he's saying this. Uh, so I appreciate the fact that he was willing to just have another voice uh, spoken, another perspective given, uh, and that really spoke uh, of his own humility. Uh, it was really a, a blessing to work with him on that. Well, and, you know, let's let's maybe even start there just briefly, but, you know, I think one of the trappings of our context is we think, man, in order to be able to have other perspectives at the table, we've got to relativize truth. But you guys don't do that. You, you're able to argue for a position, but still civilly. Give us just a brief, like, where are we at culturally with regard to relativism and how, what's, what's the way we should respond to that as Christians? 
Well, yeah, relativism, of course, is the idea that something is true for one person or one culture, but not for another. Like, you know, kind of the, the when in Rome, do as the Romans do. They have their ways. And, uh, and, who are we, and again, who are we to say that someone else is wrong? So there's this presumption that, uh, that uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, truth, uh, you know, or morality, that, uh, that it's some, simply a matter of perspective or opinion. And if you assert something, if you say, I know this is true, uh, then, of course, if you know something, then that gives you the, uh, the platform to act on it, to have a, an authoritative voice and so forth. And so there's, I think, more and more of a reluctance to actually assert your viewpoint as something that can be called knowledge. Uh, and so to uh, to avoid maybe offending someone, to avoid uh, the uh, you know the assumption that you are you know you're being arrogant by asserting something, you just uh, relativize it relativize it by saying this is just my viewpoint, it's just my perspective, it's just my opinion. And so uh, so it just turns out to be an exchange of perspectives, but but no one assumes that there's any truth about the matter that you can really know something about these things and. And, uh, and 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 we are in a in a culture in which we I think we are much more tentative, much more reluctant, much more sensitized to any kind of disagreement. And I think we need to engage in a way that was very common uh, in previous generations, where you could have a good kind of knockdown disagreement and then go out for a beer afterwards and uh, and and be be very good friends. I mean, I appreciate even the uh, the perspective that has come out, uh, the the acknowledgement that has come out uh, since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, that uh, that she and Antonin Scalia, very different ideologically, but very dear friends, a, a very sweet friendship. They could disagree about things, but yet there was a uh, commitment to friendship, to love, to humility. And that is something that we could learn from in our day. You, you hold things with conviction. You can disagree robustly. You're making claims to know something, uh, but, uh, but you can do so in a way that is gracious and winsome rather than uh, alienating, uh, alienating each other by unfriending them because you're no longer, you no longer agree on Facebook. Um, of course, Facebook may not be the greatest place to have your conversations. It's a, a very, I think, a poor platform often. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, when we do engage with one another, uh, I think it's important to have that commitment to love, to friendship, to humility, to learning from one another. Uh, even though you hold differing convictions, uh, we there's there's a way to relate to what to one another. I think that is that honors the other person, that respects the other person. Uh, to and so that's that's something that I think we really need to recapture in our day because we're really losing a lot of that in our political discourse, especially. Yeah, that's really that's really good. Well, thank you for that. Well, let's jump into, like I said, on this biblical ethics book. There's a section you have called Christians in Society, and I think early on in it, you ask, you know, what responsibility do individual Christians and the church have beyond modeling and teaching ethical behavior? What biblical justification is there for having a voice in the public square and influencing society? And are there biblical principles to guide us through the complexities of private and public church and state? Um, how should Christians think about and engage with institutions within society, such as educational structures and media? So kind of these, you know, broad questions, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens and Rome or Washington, D.C. in this case? Um, how can we even begin to get our heads around this issue as Christians? What would be kind of the first level questions we should be asking about church and govern civil government? Sure, sure. Well, remember that uh, even when we talk about religion, uh, that term itself can be very vague and ambiguous. Uh, so I think it's more helpful to talk about a worldview than religion because everybody has a worldview. Everybody needs to give justification for the worldview one holds. Why, why am I an atheist rather than a Christian? Uh, why am I a Christian rather than a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu? Uh, and how do, so as we come to this understanding, we need to understand that everyone has a stance on the nature of reality, on morality, on knowledge. Uh, so we're all, we're all coming to this with a particular stance. And so there is, I think it's important to understand that there is no neutral position here. 
It's not as though the secularist is being neutral and the relig- and the Christian, say, is the one who is biased. Uh, you can have people who are atheists who believe that human beings have no intrinsic dignity and worth and other atheists that believe that human beings do have dignity and rights and so forth. Well, how do you adjudicate between those conflicting viewpoints? Everyone has a particular perspective. Uh, so that is something that we need to keep in mind as we're looking at these sorts of issues that as we are, you know, as we engage with people, you cannot escape taking a certain stance. And so one of the things that is important for us to understand is that the secularist is taking a position. He's not being neutral. He's not being uh, kind of above the fray. He has a particular stance, has a particular agenda, if you will. And I use that in a, in a, in a positive sense. Um, but we, we also, so that's something, first of all, to keep in mind. Secondly, we have to ask the question, well, which worldview actually gives us the best basis for societal engagement, formation, um, for in, in encouraging certain things like religious liberties or intrinsic rights and so forth? And a lot of the things, and I know that there are settings outside of the Western, uh, uh, civil, outside of Western civilization that can, uh, that, uh, you know, have their own way of doing things. But when it comes to a lot of these values, about that we take for granted and that we see even the United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights signed on to and wanted to get the rest of the world to sign on to. Uh, these are primarily biblical ideas when it comes to intrinsic dignity and worth. Human beings have been endowed with a certain dignity that the this UN Declaration affirms. Uh, well, where did that dignity come from? Where do we get how do we move from valuelessness to value if we're coming from a, a naturalistic point of view? We're all talking about rights and so forth, but what is the basis for grounding those rights? And so as we, so the, as we are engaging with others, we can, we can talk about actually making a case, a public case for the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not merely a matter of private knowledge, but is actually something that is justifiable, is, you know, there's evidence for it, and we also need to understand that it's actually shaped the structures of our own Western society. Things like human rights, democracy, uh, you know, religious liberty, uh, even many of the things uh, in terms of the, the innovations of modern science, this is rooted in the Christian faith, people who were Christians who were very much promulgating the, the exploration of the universe because they believe that God made the universe, that it was rational, that it could be studied and so forth. Uh, even things like education, public education, uh, these are things that come out of a Christian worldview. You could have maybe elitist education in, you know, in ancient China and so forth, but, but something like the Protestant Reformation, where, every, where the Bible was to be in the hands of all people and that the believer could read it and understand it uh, for himself. Uh, and, and thus the printing of Bibles was very important. Uh, even as Protestant missionaries went abroad, they wanted to make sure that people could read, that they could be educated, that education, mass education, not just uh, elite education, but was important for everyone. And so wherever you see the influence of Protestantism, you see higher literacy rates, you see lower rates of corruption, uh, you see, uh, you, you, you see you know, again, a greater press for, uh, you know, even in colonial, uh, you know, former col- colonies, that where, you know, you know, in Asia and Africa, where those who led democracy movements in those countries were those who were at Protestant missionary boarding schools. They were the ones who actually led the charge to to actually create this democracy because they are influenced by that Protestant ethos. So again, I can talk about a whole lot of things, but uh, but we see that things begin at the at the at the broader level. From you know, again, everyone has a worldview. We can't escape that. The question is, which worldview actually helps us to make sense, gives us the richest resources for shaping a society? And we see that the Christian faith, is, the biblical faith, has actually given to us many rich resources for giving to us the kinds of goods that we take for granted, those democratizing gains that we see in society. And again, this is very well documented. And even atheist scholars like Jürgen Habermas, probably the leading philosopher in Europe, uh, and others have acknowledged the their debt are the West's debt to the biblical faith that has given to us these sorts of goods of equality before the law, democracy, rights, uh, the freedom of conscience, and so forth. Wow. 
That's really good. And I think it's so important that, that people hear that because, you know, in our context, we often, I was telling Nervy the other day, just how I almost kind of cringe. I get where it's coming from, but when we talk about faith-based organizations and faith-based this and that, and it, it kind of presupposes this dichotomy between sacred and secular mm-hmm. and that the secular um, realm is where knowledge is and that's where facts and stuff and truth resides. And, and you know, Francis Schaeffer talked about this, but on the, uh, the faith or secular or sorry, the faith slash sacred side, that's where we have feelings and, you know, opinions and emotional attachments. And, and I think sometimes even the way we talk, we talk about the public square and it's, and it's this idea that you don't bring your faith into that because that's not an, that's not a, um, an area of knowledge. And so why would you just bring your, you know, your personal opinions. And, and that's even relevant, I think, in this in this um, confirmation hearing of Amy Barrett, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and where you've had some people on, on I think it was Diane Feinstein a while back, she said, you know, you smack of dogma because she has religious language, not realizing that she has a worldview just as much as Amy does, and they're both going to have to argue from that place. Anything you'd want to say about that in the the so-called naked public square and where we're at with that issue? Right. Yeah. I mean, there is no neutral or naked public square. Um, Someone's worldview is going to prevail. And the question is, which worldview is the one that should prevail? Which is the one that is the mo- that is most conducive to human flourishing? Uh, which is the one that is has the interests of the broader public in mind? And so the Christian doesn't say, "Oh, um, you know, we could we need to." And many people have this mindset: we need to retake Christian America, or we need to uh, we need to bring back Christian America. Well, there are a lot of people who aren't Christians in America. Well, how do we treat them as fellow citizens with respect? And I think we need to honor the fact that you know, we we need to ha- first insist that all people have rights. That's important, but rights also, uh, you know, which that leads to treating others with respect. But also, thirdly, there's another R, uh, that responsibility is also part of this. A lot of people want to appeal to rights, uh, but they don't want to take responsibility for what it means to be a contributing citizen in society. They want to simply be takers. They want all the benefits, but they don't want to actually sacrifice or give back to uh, the society for its well-being. And in, in fact, uh, the something, you know, when it comes to the uh, you know the the whole naked public square and the these the Supreme uh, Court justice hearings, uh, as you said, Diane Feinstein has her own worldview, has her own understanding of what constitutes uh, human life, and we have to ask the question for both of them: well, you know, what is a human being, <laughs> and if that entity in the womb is a human being, then it deserves our protection uh, insofar as we're able to secure it. Uh, so, so it brings in larger questions. It's not simply, uh, you know, that you're, you're religious and I'm secular. Uh, you've got to justify yourself, but I don't. No, everybody has a burden of proof here. And so the question is for Diane Feinstein, how do you justify your own view of, you know, you know, a pro-abortion view or your, your view that, uh, that the entity in the womb is simply, you know, is, is non-human, isn't a life or whatever, which again goes against science, goes against biology. It is a human, it is a life, and given enough, uh, you know, given enough time, we'll be, uh, we'll be voting, uh, we'll be contributing to society and so forth. Uh, and so if it's a human life, uh, shouldn't we regard, shouldn't we protect this life and so forth? So, so there are a lot of host of questions that are there that she is simply just taking for granted, certainly, uh, and, and Amy uh, Coney Barrett can certainly uh, can hold her own on these sorts of things. But, but yeah, you're, you're right that there is no neutrality uh, when it comes to these things. Everyone will take a stance. And whether it's in the Senate or whether it's on the street corner, and we're talking to people uh, as we're you know, as we're conversing, you know, walking through, walking down the street together, um, everyone has a worldview. Everyone takes a stance. The question is, what worldview uh, is best justified by uh, all that we know, which makes the best sense of the evidence? And uh, those are important questions worth exploring. And then we can talk about things like knowledge and not simply a mere opinion. Yeah, and, and somebody I was listening to recently put it, they said it's not whether, but which. 
exactly. it's not not whether you're going to have a, you know, worldview informed or even when it comes to, you know, when people talk about legislating morality, it's not whether you're going to do that. It's which morality you're going to legislate. And so what are just, just briefly, what are some of the implications if you do adopt a secularist worldview, there is no God, you know, physics, chemistry is all there is. What are some of the political implications of that? If you apply that consistently? Yeah. Well, I know some people will say, well, you're creating a a false dichotomy. Not all secularists uh, believe that human beings are just molecules in motion, that they have no dignity, no rights, and so forth. Many will say we do have rights, we have dignity, we have duties, and so forth, and we ought to carry them out. Um, The problem is that there's, you know, for that viewpoint, what we call the broad naturalist, uh, we'd say, well, what is the basis for going from valuelessness to value? Well, what is the basis for going from non-conscious matter to consciousness? What is the basis for going from deterministic particles in motion to free will and moral responsibility? Uh, what is the, what worldview best justifies, uh, say, individual personhood? Is it an impersonal universe or a universe made by a personal being? So a whole host of questions come with this. Uh, and so to, so I'd say the, the broad or moral atheist uh, has problems with regard to the very basis for his own, uh, I think what he's doing is he's borrowing from a theistic worldview, actually, uh, and, uh, and, and, and importing that into his own. Uh, but uh, but when it comes to the strict naturalist who believes that we're simply molecules in motion, I think that there will at, at some point be some kind of tension. Uh, we all know how we want to be treated, and I think when we look into our own uh, you know heart of hearts, we recognize that the the way that that person is uh, cruel or mistreating another person, I don't want that to happen to me. And we we can be at least somewhat self reflective and say, well, this isn't really the way that we ought to conduct society. Uh, we may we, we we probably you know even the naturalist like Richard Dawkins recognizes that there's a certain contradiction here. Uh, he says that you know again from Oxford University, a zoologist says that from a from a from a uh, you know, from an academic point of view, as a as a biologist, he says, uh, he says, I am a you know a, 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 a fierce Darwinian. That Darwin Darwinism explains the uh, you know the natural selection and so forth. But he says, but from a, when it comes to a social and ethical viewpoint, he says, I am, you know, an anti-Darwinist because he says I, you can't live this way in society as a simple, as simply following the naturalistic ordering of, uh, of you know, that follows in you know, kind of a, a secularist view of Darwin. Um, Darwin did allow for the belief in God, by the way, but, but when it comes to Dawkins, who doesn't, uh, he says that the universe, if it's, you know, as we, if it's just a matter of selfish genes and electrons, he says there is no good or evil. Uh, there is, you know, at bottom, there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So we're left with a very bleak worldview in which humans have no dignity or worth. There is no right or wrong. And uh, fundamentally, it's a matter of whoever holds the keys to power. Whoever, can, whoever has, carries the big stick is going to be the winner here because there is no intrinsic dignity and worth. Uh, I want to get my way. And so if people get in the way, then force is the only way to get it. Uh, and so people will do it. So that's that's what we're left with, uh, a nature red in tooth and claw, uh, as Alfred Lord Tennyson said. So that's uh, I think those are the uh, the anticipated uh, outcomes uh, if you if you take that view. And Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist, saw that very clearly. A lot of people were still clinging to uh, a universe uh, governed by God, even though they didn't, you know call themselves believers, a lot of the things that had come down through culture, human rights, human dignity, moral duties, and so forth, you know, they still would hang on to those things. But Nietzsche said, no, uh, if you're going to carry this all the way to the end, you can't even, you can't hold to those sorts of humanizing things. Those things are gone because God, you know, God is the very basis for those things. And uh, you get rid of God, you get rid of all of those things that we so want to hang on to. Wow. Yeah, I think that's true. It's as Oz Guinness calls it a cut root civilization that we're living in. We've cut off the roots of the Judeo Christian worldview, and then the flower, you know, begins to die. And I think the way that's playing out, I I would love to know your 
opinion on this, but it seems to me that there's this story in Western civilization of cutting off God from the, you know, your metaphysical framework. And then over time, like Nietzsche's madman, people begin to realize it. And so they go through this phase of materialism, but then something has to come in and replace that because it's so empty. And I feel like the thing that's coming in now is that postmodern impulse and the neo-Marxism that gives people like a, a religious, um, kind of fervency in a, in a purpose to life uh, that's now based on this new movement. So I feel like we've even went through the secularist attempt to import the theistic worldview. And now you got people that are even trying to intentionally overturn the founding principles of this nation and they're being mainstreamed. Do you think I'm right on that? And, and what do you do when that starts to be the case? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that there is a, um, you know, the danger of, uh, you know, once you give up on those fundamental principles of, um, you know, people being endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Uh, and of course, the founders by that meant, you know, they talked about the, the, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They didn't think, oh, we can do whatever we want, party city, uh, but rather um, it was, you know, happiness is in the classical sense that, say, Aristotle talked about, um, that happiness or well-being is something that has virtue at its root, uh, that you can't truly have proper well-being or human flourishing unless it is a virtuous life that you are living. And our founders themselves recognize that democracy, that a republic, if you can keep it, is something that could only be maintained if you have a religious, they meant you know, biblically informed, uh, you know, you know, moral people, uh, that, that, that this kind of a society could not be sustained unless you had character to undergird it. There is a Roman writer, Pliny, who said, the more corrupt the republic, the more laws. This Roman writer said about his own Roman empire, the more corrupt it becomes, the more laws you need to pile up because character no longer matters. You can't count on people to keep their word, to maintain their contracts and so forth. So you've got to pile on the legislation. You've got to pile on the, uh, the implementation of that legislation, kind of more policing going on. Uh, so, so character does very much matter here. And, uh, and again, democracy without character is going to lead to the kind of things that we're seeing, like mob rule, uh, people bullying others, uh, that there is a certain, you know, uh, there is a fascism uh, that, is, uh, that is being unleashed here where, uh, where there is a kind of, some, again, there's no, no attempt, at least <clears throat> on the part of, you know, a lot of these uprisings uh, for reconciliation, for moving forward in a constructive way. It's simply, uh, you know, burn and destroy sorts of, a sort of, kind of a sort of, sort of mindset here. Um, it's a lot easier to tear down than it is to build up. And we're not being given a vision of how to actually build up, uh, you know, it is simply dismantling. But then the question is, what is actually going to fill the place of what has served us, yes, with flaws, mistakes, and but yet some progress, uh, what is actually going to fill the void here? Well, if we look at the similar movements, um, uh, you know, my, my father was born in Ukraine, and so he saw the, the famine of the Ukraine that was instigated under a socialist uh, government. Uh, we've seen similar uprisings in uh, Venezuela, in Cuba, and so forth. And wherever you see the wreckage of socialism, again, a lot of great ideals but yet, uh, you know, again, fundamentally driven by power. And if anything got in the way, <clears throat> there, was a, there was a price to pay. So Walter Durante, who is a, a New York Times reporter in Moscow, uh, who is trying to hide the fact that, you know, uh, you know his New York Times correspondent, uh, hi, trying to hide the fact that people were starving, that there, was, uh, that there were food lines and so forth, just tried to show the best of Moscow and said, it's working here. And, uh, but he, he acknowledged after Stalin uh, that he said, well, you know, you know, he still wanted to maintain the socialist, uh, you know, fervor. And he said, well, you might have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. That was his mindset. Uh, and, and again, you see that over and over again, that there is a kind of thuggery to progressivism, progressivism beginning with, uh, you know, get with Woodrow Wilson, you can read about this in liberal fascism, uh, beginning with Woodrow Wilson, who 
didn't like the Constitution, um, had his own paramilitary troops um, that that quashed anything that was uh, you know was counter to what he preferred. Um, this led to Mussolini, who was a great you know he's a progressive uh, and was lauded here in the United States as someone who uh, they said yes he's a he's a dictator but he's a good dictator you know so you had to pick. You know, you just had to get the right dictator in place, and and that was okay. But there was that impulse, and even you know, FDR had his own paramilitary, uh, the Blue Eagles. If you worked longer than you were supposed to, then uh, you you met trouble with the with the government. Uh, so so all sorts of so there's this constant um, thuggery. There's a there's a certain oppression that comes with uh, with the progressive vision, uh, and I think really what we're dealing with here is a clash of visions. Uh, some, you know, Thomas Sowell talked about a uh, talked about a a vision that is the and and Stephen Pinker also comments on it too, where you have a tragic vision and a utopian vision, and the tragic vision recognizes that there are certain problems you're not going to fix no matter what you do. You're not going to be able to get to the root cause of it and solve it all. You can't eradicate. Uh, you know, racial prejudice. Uh, some people are just going to be prejudiced. You can't get rid of that. I mean, you can try, you can train people up and so forth and educate them, but some people will still be prejudiced. Some people will be lazy. They're not going to work hard and, sh- and, 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 and so forth. But <clears throat> on, the, on the side of the utopian vision, there's this, this assumption that human beings are malleable. They can be shaped through just getting enough education or having the right people in power and so forth, um, rather than seeing that there is, a, there is a tragic flaw in humanity, whether it's in an individual or you know, in larger institutions. And so that's why you need checks and balances to make, to make sure that there isn't going to be this massive corruption, but that these structures of power, you know, legislative, judicial, executive, that they have uh, a, a certain way of keeping each other accountable and keeping each other balanced. Uh, so, so I think that we're seeing a lot of that sort of thing of kind of even overthrowing those checks and balances and kind of ramrodding certain things through uh, you know, and, and, and I think that there is a great danger here, like, oh, let's just get all of the, you know, like, let's stack the courts, let's get 15 justices in, and then they'll kind of do the legislating for us, legislating from the bench and so forth, just getting the right people in power. And, and I think that there is a great, uh, again, a great danger to that. And, and, and we're really operating at two different visions. I think we need to understand that. Um, there are a lot of great intentions, but we also need to look at what are the results of these policies? Uh, what are the results of, say, you know, raising the minimum wage and forcing businesses to do that sort of a thing? Um, you know, well, actually, you'll put a lot of people out of business if you raise the minimum wage. People aren't going to want to hire because the rate, you know, and so, but you think, oh, we're going to solve poverty by raising the minimum wage. Well, what are the ramifications of that sort of a thing? And, uh, and, and progressives uh, tend to like, uh, tend to, you know, the progressive or utopian vision tends to focus on what is the intention? What is the, you know, the, the desire? What is the motive? And, and the, the more tragic vision says, well, what is actually the outcome of these policies? Let's look at the results of this sort of a thing. What will this actually end up doing to people? And so, so we can appreciate that there is a certain motive that is, that is positive, that is laudable. But I think the more fundamental question needs to be asked, well, what actually ends up happening to people who are put under these policies? And so I think that that's why the tragic vision, I think, is a more winsome and appropriate and realistic vision than the utopian vision that tries to just, uh, that assumes that we can get the right people in power, we, we can reform human nature, uh, in, and, and it's malleable enough to shape it in whatever way we want. And so therefore, education uh, instead of the family uh, takes over that it let, it, we, you know, parents aren't, aren't smart enough to raise their own kids. Let the government do it. Let, let uh, the teachers' unions do it and so forth. And so a, a lot of freedom is being taken away. And I think something like school choice, Thomas Sowell, a uh, black economist, just wrote uh, about the importance of school choice in helping uh, those who are in, in, injecting competition here rather than simply you know, resting, putting power into, say, the public schools. And even if they're dead-end schools, well, let's inject a little competition in here so that people can choose the places where to send their kids so that they can, you know, and, and let tax dollars go to those places that are actually performing. So, again, there are just implications for these sorts of things. Uh, taking, I think we see more and more the 
uh, kind of an elitist uh, even treatment of the American people on the side of progressivism, unfortunately, uh, where people are, you know, they're too dumb to make their own decisions, uh, you know, that, that it, it requires people who are just highly educated, people who've been in power for a long time. And, and I think more of us are feeling like we're feeling very unprotected. Um, a lot of things, you know, like a lot of control is being taken out of our hands. A, a, lot of, a lot of choices are being removed from us, like having your own choice uh, as a doctor and so forth. Uh, well, you know, a massive health care plan, again, it sounds great, but, uh, but again, it's going to actually limit the kinds of choices that you have, and not to mention ballooning uh, the, uh, you know, ballooning you know, and inflating the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the national debt and so forth through these sorts of programs. But anyway, I'm kind of going off track here, but again, keeping those two visions in mind. And I think a, a very good book is, uh, you know, again, uh, called Liberal Fascism uh, by Jonah Goldberg. And um, again, there are just many critiques out there uh, that are available, but I think that socialism does have a certain oppressive dimension to it, that if you get in the way of the socialist agenda, then uh, you are going to be uh, made into an omelet. Wow. I've heard so many conversations about um, Christians should kind of stay out of politics. It's polluted. It's it's just depraved, and we should have nothing to do with it. But um, I wanted to pick your brain on this. When is resistance justified for Christians as the government um, sort of overreaches? Is there a place where um, we, we should, you know what, take a stand, no, speak out and just engage, and this right here is wrong. We as Christians should take a stand yeah. against. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. Now, when you say resistance, that could be a very loaded term, of course. <laughs> well, she's got, she just bought yes. three guns, Paul, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit <laughs> scared. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I think... Or. Right, yeah. Well, I think resistance is important in the sense that, yeah, I mean, we... We speak out as much as we can. Uh, we seek to persuade people. Uh, we try to uh, present alternatives. And, and yeah, I know that we're living in a society where uh, if you bring up um, politics, if you bring up anything that differs from the uh, kind of mainstream thinking, uh, you're, there's, there's a very little openness to actually hearing people out, listening to another perspective, uh, discovering why people came to this kind of a conclusion. I think it's very, it's very important for us to be good listeners. Um, and I think within the body of Christ, I know that there are people who are um, progressives. I don't agree with uh, progressivism. I, I, you know, just, I think looking at its history and kind of its founding fathers of Marx, Darwin, and Nietzsche, that's not a good start to, uh, to, uh, to advancing progressivism. I think there are a lot of ideas that progressives uh, maintain uh, that, you know, I mean, who doesn't want to help the poor? Who doesn't want health care? Uh, who doesn't want to have everybody educated and so forth? I mean, we, we get that. Um, but there are also certain consequences that come you know, with that. And the question is, well, how, do, how can we best achieve those sorts of things? And so trying to encourage that kind of a conversation, you're just looking at, well, what socialist countries have actually performed well, you know, kind of model countries that we can look to and it, you know, again, Scandinavian countries are not models of socialism. They just have high taxes, but they're actually highly capitalistic. They are not socialistic. And a lot of people think, you know, in fact, Sweden, which had been highly socialistic, has had to scale back on its socialism and, and bring things more into the private sector. Uh, so they're, they're really you know, abandoning um, socialism. But a lot of people just assume, oh, that's, that's the socialism that I like. No, it's, uh, it, it is not socialism at all. Um, um, it's just high tax, high taxation. But, but let me just, uh, let me just, um, you know, go on from there to, to say that, um, you know, when you look at the, on the other hand, where, do, where have people really come out of poverty? What has brought people out of poverty? It hasn't been through a government program. It hasn't been through redistribution of wealth. People come out of poverty when they have the opportunity to take risk and start their own businesses, when they have laws protecting those businesses and property rights and so forth, uh, rather than the government stepping in and taking over things. So you know, where you have those sorts of, you know, where you have that kind of a setup, uh, you will have greater income 
uh, you know, and you can look at the book Money, Greed, and God, which talks about this, uh, you know, by Jay, Jay Richards, uh, where, you know, wherever you have those sorts of structures, per capita income rises. In fact, in China, though it's communist, it is allowed for a free market, and hundreds of millions in China, as well as in India, which has a free market, have come out of poverty in the last you know, 30 uh, plus years. So this is something that you know, a lot of people have ignored, but poverty has shrunk because of the free market, not because of socialism. Uh, sending money to Africa, to needy countries, basically just uh, the handout sort of mentality, it just goes into the pockets of dictators and bureaucrats and so forth and actually doesn't even reach the people. Uh, something that my wife and I have been involved in, in fact, she helps found this organization, uh, it's called Peer Servants, and it basically, it's a, it's a, a ministry that raises funds for people in developing nations so they can start their own businesses and then they pay back their loan with interest so that it can go to the next person in line. So they'll buy uh, carpentry tools or they'll buy, they'll, they'll try to get a, a fruit stand or a bake shop going. And, and then they pay back their loans. We went to Mexico and visited someone who had gotten a sewing machine. And she has, you know, she was working, making washcloths and towels for a, 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 a business, a company. And then she's able to hire others to add to the business. And then they were actually able to enter into this and become economically self-sufficient themselves. So it wasn't through redistribution of wealth, but it was through, again, yes, an investment of capital. And then and also accountability, training in business and so forth. And then, re and then, then getting that money paid back. And again, we have, again, the, the ministry has a, a significant payback rate in the night, you know, like 95% or so of loans repaid, which any business would love to see. But uh, so, so that's the kind of thing, that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, starting your own business, being able to keep a lot of what you've earned uh, and being able to start other businesses. So, so again, the question is, which system is it the more progressive system or is it the uh is it the uh, a more free enterprise system that actually brings people out of poverty and as you look across the globe it's clearly free enterprise and so we need to do those sorts of things you know even under you know you know even more recently before the covid uh, uh outbreak uh more blacks uh you know you know had jobs uh women uh minorities uh, that unemployment for those groups was at its lowest uh before covid hit um, again, it's basically deregulating and taking away a lot of those strictures that oppress uh, and allow people to begin their own businesses, uh, to be creative and to take risks and so forth. Uh, but once you start to take a lot of that potential investment for other businesses away, then, uh, then you know, it leads to that kind of, uh, you know, kind of a grinding halt to business and initiative and a growing economy, again, which brings people out of poverty. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks for that, Paul. And it sounds like, you know, as we're kind of rounding third base here, but it sounds like, you know, you're saying it's not weather, but which worldview to, to mm -hmm. kind of back out here. And then to Christians, how would you encourage us to develop our biblical worldview as it connects to civil government? What are some ways we can begin to just ask the right questions and then and kind of take it all the way from the kind of abstract to the concrete so right. to where we we start up here but we end on okay what do we do when the government's telling us we cannot um meet for church for instance right. or we right. can't yeah. sing in yeah church. we did start there didn't we yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah the resistance thing um yeah I, you know you're you're right and and i would just want to you know, you know want to add that you know, you mentioned the word, everybody has a worldview, but even within the Christian worldview, you know, at least here in, you know, the, the West, uh, there are two different visions within that worldview. One is the utopian vision, you know, how much gov can government do? How much can government accomplish? Uh, you know, how much responsibility should government take? And of course, there's a lot more given to the government um, and a lot more taken away from individual initiative and responsibility as opposed to the tragic vision, which a lot, which recognizes human flaws and, uh, but also, you know, recognize the need for checks and balances and that there are some things that people will gravitate to um, when, for example, you know, when it comes to self-interest, Self-interest is not wrong. A lot of people criticize self-interest, but to start a business, um, to get the, you know, if, you, if you're a baker, 
you're, you're interested in sustaining your family. And if I'm a customer um, of that baker, I can go in and feed my family. So I have a, an interest in getting that product to help my family. And, and so it's a, it should ultimately be a win-win situation. And so I think if we can work in a way that constructs a kind of win-win situation within our society, rather than pitting one group against another, but how can we, again, construct it, whether it be economics or when it comes to uh, doing church uh, and, and, and so forth, you know, we can recognize, begin by recognizing the motives are there. I mean, they want to help the poor. They want to help uh, bring human flourishing to society. But we also need to ask the question, well, which visions have actually proven most helpful in this regard? Is it the more, more progressive utopian vision or is it more the tragic uh, kind of free enterprise type uh, vision that, that goes along with it? Um, you know, and, and, and also... Um, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, you know, when it comes to pushing back on the government, I think, yes, where parents have a voice to speak uh, up and, and have, rather than have their, their kids, inner city kids and dead end schools pressing for, uh, for, uh, for school choice. I think this is a great way out of poverty. You want to help people out of poverty, give them a good education that can sustain them. Uh, and so at a very concrete level, something along those lines, giving young businesses, you know, removing as many regulations as possible so that they can actually step into businesses, sustain their families uh, and, and enter into, you know, again, coming out of poverty themselves. We come a long way when it comes to poverty uh, here in the United States. States and, and, and around the world, uh, there has been great progress made through these, uh, through these areas. Uh, so when it, when it comes to pushing back on the government, yeah, we, we ought to, you know, push back, but do so through persuasion, uh, through, again, moral example, I think even through evangelism, uh, where we share our faith with others, which also has a certain redemptive lift that, that, you know, kind of a new work ethic that comes, a new concern for family, a new concern for the well-being of others and so forth, that we've seen throughout Western history that where you have that kind of redemption, people often affect the, the structures of society by pressing for changes, for bringing about moral reforms and so forth. So, so the Christian faith should not be quiet. It actually has shaped uh, many of the many of the good structures that we have affirmed in Western society, uh, and so for Christians to pull back and not to exert an influence would be a great tragedy. We're to be we're called to be salt and light. So whether this means uh, you know working in a you know in a you know in you know in a in a, in a local uh, neighborhood uh, you know, kind of mentoring program for for you know kids who don't have a ch you know don't have much of a chance or uh, teaching English to immigrants to uh, to helping uh, people who are wanting to be entrepreneurs to get uh, training for them so they know how to run a business so people who've been in business know you know have the know-how to pass that on so giving them training know how to, knowing how to write resumes but also mentorship is going to be important modeling what it means to you know, as a, an intact family, what is a, what does a good family life look like? Uh, what does it mean to be a person of character and moral responsibility, teaching people uh, about these sorts of things? But this comes often through relationships, and a lot of these volunteer organizations that, were, that are starting to disappear have had such a great value within our society, uh, stepping in and helping people who are potentially falling through the cracks, whether it be through uh, poverty, uh, you know, uh, through alcoholism and, and substance abuse and so forth, uh, that there is a a, there's a, a, a part to play here. And, uh, and so there's a, the, you know, and even getting involved in the broader sectors of society, uh, how can I make a difference through maybe uh, as, as a movie producer and, and making films uh, that are going to be helpful or being, uh, being involved in, in business, uh, being involved in journalism and so forth, really showing journalism how to do, you know, journalists how to do journalism, uh, and, and really be having that kind of integrity. We used to have a Walter Cronkite who, you know, people really trusted him, whatever political side you were on, because he gave things in a straightforward, uh, you know, in, in fairly, you know, objective way that people said, yeah, I trust that guy. But unfortunately, in the media today, there, there are very few trustworthy sources, uh, even covering up stories and so forth, as we are very familiar, and not letting uh, actual facts that would, you know, if it were the, if the if things were reversed, the media would be all over this. It would be a feeding frenzy for them, but they're just dead silent on so many other things. So, so it would be great to have journalists, whatever side you're coming from, to really be committed to the truth of the matter, to being really committed to uh, integrity in journalism uh, rather than just playing the party line. 
So good. Well, now you've went to the utopian uh, viewpoint there. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a, that's a, you know, a pipe dream there. Right, exactly. But, uh, uh, but, but it uh, used to be done. It used to be uh, <laughs> There were some good role models out yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I know we're getting late here, so I just maybe one last question here. Uh, man, there's so many more I wish mm. we had time to ask you, but, um, you know, as a philosopher, as a thinker, help us lay folk in the church. You know, we're at a place now, you mentioned this earlier, where there's kind of this elitist thing and they're telling us, listen to the experts and well, right. should we listen to them two weeks ago or today? Cause they're saying different things, but right. I mean, that's a problem, but also how do, how do we, is something as simple as what's going on with the coronavirus? It's been a bit difficult for people to get their heads around or the issue of racism and anti-racism. Mm -hmm. So many voices and, and the thing is they're telling us, you know, you got to listen to the scientists or whatever, but they don't let the dissenters be heard. When is it rationally justified to go against the consensus of the expert? Um, is there a time when that is? Or how do, how do we work through this as lay people right now with all this information out there? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are changing voices. I and mean, when, you, when you hit a coronavirus um, pandemic, it's, it's a learning curve. And so it's important to understand that you're not going to get everything right. I mean, of course... Many, you know, when, when it first came out, many thought it was just kind of another flu bug. And so you have, you know, you know people like, you know, Joe Biden and others saying, oh, don't shut down the borders, you know, let people travel and so forth. Um, that's uh, that's uh, xenophobic to close, you know, close down travel to places like China and so on. Uh, of course, lessons have been learned since then. Uh, and, uh, and, and the opposite view has been taken, even perhaps to another, uh, another extreme. But, uh, but I think one recognizing that you know there is a certain learning curve. I think looking at some of the outcomes, uh, looking at it's kind of interesting. How do how have certain you know states handled this? How have states you know done better than others on this? Uh, do you put people in nurse you know COVID people in you know who, those who have COVID in nursing homes? Um, you know you know you know or you know. Or do you, do you have a one-size-fits-all policy, or do you do it, say, graded according to maybe counties where you have certain you know, easing of restrictions, cautions in place, but, but then allowing for a certain unfolding? Because part of that is, you know, part of the science, as it were, um, you know, in terms of what's healthy for people is also being able to work, being able to go back to school and so forth. So, and, and also, who is going to be the most susceptible? Um, it's not going to be kids in school who are going to be the most susceptible and so forth. So, paying attention to those things rather than just shutting down schools totally and not allowing people to go back, we'll, we'll do things in a graded way take certain precautions, recognize that those who are 70 and above are at the higher risk and those below 70 are at 99.9 whatever uh, risk. Um, and again, this is just, I think a lot of times it's, it's common sense that we, we also need to, uh, to honor. Uh, and you can have people from different, you know, giving, you know, scientists, there are some people who are, you know, You'll hear one voice on TV, but then there are others who say, no, actually, uh, when it comes to public policy, there may be the kind of the, the science and how the virus works, but there are also more, there are social factors or economic factors that we need to bring into this too. So just, quote, following the science, that's one part of the package, but we need to be more broad-minded and say, well, what is actually going to be for the benefit of the, of the, the, the broader society and, and work in, in wise Kind of commonsensical ways uh, where we where we try to do things according to gradations rather than perhaps a one size fits all policy. Um, so yeah, and I think a lot of times you know the elites, as you've said, uh, will have a certain viewpoint. But a lot of times the elites don't have a business sense; they don't know how to run businesses. But yet they're imposing on many businesses or would be businesses certain strictures that actually inhibit. The growth of business and it's more of a punishing you know high tax sort of thing that people don't want to go into business if that's you know, how it's going to operate and so so there, there are there's that uh, dimension uh, when it comes to um i was going to come up with i was thinking of one other uh, one other uh, dimension here about well i mean william buckley conservative but he said he would rather have you know kind of pick the first hundred names out of a phone book uh, and and put them in power, 
than to pick maybe even some of these elites from Harvard and Yale and so forth. Why? Because these people know how to run businesses. They know how to change a tire. They know how to run a farm. They know how to do all these very practical things. And a lot of the legislation that is being done really runs counter to the, the, you know, the very business, their livelihood, how they do their family and so forth. So those are the kinds of things that we need to, I think, remind people of. And Mark Twain said that common sense isn't very common. Uh, and I think especially when it comes to, uh, to, to many in government, that where there's that elitist mindset and almost a disdain for the common person. Uh, you know, you know, I mean, even terms like bag, you know, the basket of deplorables and so forth. I mean, whatever you think of people who dissent from, you know, siding with you, uh, you know, show some respect, show some regard. Don't treat them as, as people who have no you know, dignity, uh, as people who have no minds of their own and so forth. So, so I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of lessons to, you know, all, all across the political spectrum. Uh, but, uh, but maybe a few uh, things to consider on, on that front. That's good. So even as an academic, you're saying we shouldn't just chuck our brains out and basically bow to the, you know, consensus of experts. We, we also need to employ a common sense, look at both sides of an argument. And sure. Yeah. I mean, I think of a, a friend of mine was telling me this of a woman who had raised six kids and then went into, uh, you know, wanted to get her own degree in psychology. So she's taking child psychology and everything. And here's this teacher who doesn't have any children is teaching this course. And basically, he'd eventually have to say, okay, now, what would you say to this situation? Or how would you uh, act here? And basically, this woman, you know, this mother who had all this expertise, uh, you know, she could be relied upon, even though this person had, you know, a doctorate in child psychology or whatever, uh, needed to learn some lessons, you know, because this this woman had done the work. She had put she had put in the hard work. knew knew how things operated in the home and so forth. And and so he at least had the decency to respect her input and her wisdom that she had gained in this process. So I think that that's you know, we can use a little more of that. That's good. Little dose hey, before so we get good. off anything you had. Babe, was there any last? Uh, just a thought. You know, I remember hearing once I think a lecture from Hillsdale College that said family, the nuclear nuclear family is a small representation of government and that's where one can really start to learn how to just exercise morality how how would you um say your your worldview has nourished that nourished that like the relationship yeah. between morality and government and laws just a quick little closing yeah, yeah. well i mean yeah i mean you're you're right about the the, the place of the family and I, I think we're seeing a lot of the family being diminished um, and, uh, but, but I'd say more to the morality and law uh, dimension. Um, one, as I said, you, you can't ground human dignity if we've simply come from valueless processes. Human beings, however, have been made in the image of God, which gives to us that value that we have. And so even if you're an atheist, you can still recognize your own dignity and how you ought to treat others. Um, so you don't have to believe in God in order to know moral truths and have a conscience and so forth. And uh, so, so that's one thing. Secondly, uh, there is a general you know, a general possibility that people can know right from wrong that their conscience is fun functioning at a halfway decent level. And so they can get a lot of things right uh, and, and that they are morally responsible agents. And so a government takes into account that human beings are not simply uh, automatons, that they're not simply dancing to the music of their DNA, but they are can, can be held accountable for their actions. And again, the Christian wor biblical worldview makes excellent sense of that. Um, also, uh, the government has a certain responsibility. Uh, what is going to be the, the best way to, and God has ordained government along with family, uh, along with church, uh, you know, that God has ordained government to, uh, you know, keep, keep these P's in mind here, uh, to preserve order, uh, to punish the guilty and to protect the innocent. I mean, it's a kind of a, a, a bare bones kind of thing here. Uh, but 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 again, the the government does have a role to uh, to keep order in society. And you know, even when Paul, when he was uh, about when there was a mob that was seeking to take his life in in Acts twenty three, Paul tells a commanding officer in in the Roman army what's going to happen through his nephew. And he ends up getting a, an escort out of Jerusalem to Caesarea with 470 uh, military uh, personnel. And, and, and here the government was doing its job. It, it's God-ordained job to protect this innocent citizen uh, from, from harm 
and to preserve order and to so and to punish the guilty if necessary. So so again, we see even there just a, a kind of a fundamental role that God has given to the government that that we are not to take personal vengeance. Paul says in Romans thirteen, but. That, that term vengeance and wrath are used in Romans 13, the next chapter, when it talks about government, that the minister, when the, the ministry, uh, the government minister is doing his job or her job, then it will be to properly, you know, execute that wrath by punishing uh, evildoers, uh, those who are bringing harm and disorder to society. Uh, so God has delegated that wrath and vengeance. Uh, and he says the minister does not, uh, the state doesn't bear the sword for nothing. So, so again, there, again, it's a, a picture of a, a lethal, a very severe punishment here. It's not just like an officer's ticket book. Um, so so the, the state, when it's doing its job, uh, is going to do those sorts of things that Paul uh, received when the Roman uh, government or the Roman ar- army gave him that escort. And so, again, it's not as though every government is doing the right thing. Just like, you know, people say, you know, you know, my, you know, this marriage is made in heaven and so forth. Well, marriage was made in heaven, but it doesn't mean that every marriage has been made in heaven, as it were. And the same thing, government was made in heaven, but it doesn't mean that every government is operating according to the way that God uh, had ordained it to function. So, so those are perhaps a few wrap-up thoughts there that kind of give a a little bit more of a theological uh, backdrop to some of the things that we've been talking about. That's really helpful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Paulus. We always learn so much from you, and, and this has been a, a privilege and a pleasure for us. Well, it's been a great, uh, uh, great treat for me. Great to see you guys again, and uh, look forward to the next time that we can uh, break bread together. Yes, sir. Us too. Amen. Hopefully, it'll okay. be in the UK again. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that'll be wonderful. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Paul Copan. Don't forget, you can watch all of our videos from the God and Government series on our YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash freemindpodcast and you'll find the playlist there. You'll also find videos from our social justice series talking about critical theory and other current events on YouTube. We would love to interact with you on social media. We are at freemindfm on Instagram and Twitter and freemindpodcastfm on Facebook. And don't forget, we have lots of bonus episodes available to you if you support the show at patreon.com slash freemindfm. A monthly donation of any amount gets you access to the full back catalog of question and answer sessions and other special episodes with our guests. Finally, if you haven't done it yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts so we can climb the ranks and be discovered by more people looking for Christian apologetic content like yourself. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.